tonight on Perch Exploitation. Yeah, it's good to see you, Peanut. Yeah, days are gone. I'm gonna be cool now. Before you're a cross-examined officer Freeman, I'd like to take this opportunity to commend you for your fine exhibition of unselfish and calm action to help your friend and fellow officer in a time of desperate peril. Hey man, what you mean? Folks like us ain't got but one way to go, and that's back to the bag. We done burned up all the bridges! This community needs is more officer freedoms. More officer freedoms are the guts to stand up for what's fine and decent in this country. That's bullshit of foul, Peter. When I was lying up there doing my time, man, I made up for mine. I'm not about to spend the rest of my life on the white man's installment plan. Perfect case to cite for the bleeding hearts that would have us turn maniacs like the defendant loose to crack the collective skull of society with their devilish bricks, to shoot down innocent people in the streets with their diabolical guns. The white man can stall in front what is five, ten, man, maybe another seven and a half, until you make that final payment. On a slab and some white is more. Uh -huh. You yourself admitted how much you hate this guy. That kind of hatred brings on mania. And welcome to another episode of Project Exploitation. <laughs> I hope that's uh, why you tuned in, because um, that's all we got for you here, uh, folks. The voice you hear, of course, belongs to <laughs> one great guy. His name is Nick Cheney. That's me. How you doing? <laughs> Looking great. And the voice you don't hear yet uh, belongs to 
Mr. Dan Jeremy Brooks. Dan, welcome home. How are you? <clears throat> the man in that police van tried to castrate you. Ooh, how could he know the effect would be to mutate you? Ooh, and that rage they put in you kept on growing behind bars. So welcome back, brother. Welcome home, brother Charles. All right. I really like the uh, the the rhyming scheme on that one. That was a, that was a pretty tender ballad. Oh, thank you. Uh, what was that tune? Oh, uh, it is uh, "Welcome Back to the Poor Side of Town" by Johnny Rivers. It's from the mid to middle sixties, I'd say. Okay. But. Fun fact, and I know you'll enjoy this. Fun fact? Yes. I'll, I'll be the judge of that. But yeah, what is it? Okay, well, fair enough. Well, if you are a fan of R.E.M., uh, the uh, the hook in Poor Side of Town, the... Which is done over and over again at the end of each chorus. It's Like I said, it's the main hook. Uh, in the R.E.M. song, Don't Go Back to Rockville, oh. at the end, you can hear Peter Buck do it as a little throwaway at the end. So it's like, you know... You know, waste another year, and then he goes, you know, it's kind of cool. It's just a sort of fun little thing. I always, always makes me chuckle. Okay, that is a fun fact, because I do like R.E.M. Well, no, I love R.E.M., so, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I did appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, if you couldn't pick up on it already from those lovely rhymes, uh, today we are going to be talking about Welcome Home, Brother Charles, uh, also known as Soul Vengeance uh, in some releases. Just a little background info before I kick it to Dan with his handwritten, maybe typed, I don't know, I'm, I'm not going to assume, uh, summary that will painstakingly go over all the details, uh, <laughs> as we are wont to do on our recent episodes here. Uh, Welcome Home Brother Charles is a uh, pretty early uh, entry into uh, the exploitation genre, uh, written and directed by Jama Fanaka, uh, who was, at the time of this movie, a student at UCLA Film School. He was basically working on this picture while he was there, um, and that's why most of the people in the movie are kind of unknowns, and also there's a lot of actual on-location you know, shooting, um, especially like a great little montage in the middle of the movie that I'm sure we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, he directed, wrote it, uh, got it produced. Uh, it was distributed by Crown International Pictures, which I, f I find interesting because on the one hand, Crown International Pictures was a huge uh, treasure trove uh, repository, whatever you want to call it, of these kind of B-movies exploitation uh, flicks. On the other hand, whenever I think of Crown International Pictures, I don't think of many movies that have quite the uh substance that i think this one does you know uh, certainly mm. it's got a similar budget similar uh maybe vocab <laughs> and maybe similar uh, uh sleeviness to some of the extreme scenes in this movie but usually at, at the expense of its own characters for no real reason other than to either titillate or shock. Whereas uh, Welcome Home, Brother Charles is sure. a movie of a different kind within that cesspool. So we'll get into <laughs> all that, of course. Uh, so, Dan, Jeremy Brooks, uh, what is this movie about? Tell me everything. All right. Well, I did. I, I wrote the summary, plot summary, and holy fuck, it's long. Okay, so I'm just going to get through it as fast as I can. <clears throat> plot summary. When we meet Charles Murray, the titular brother Charles, he and his friend N.D. are sitting in a Compton Notel Motel 
waiting for a seller of illicit goods to arrive. What kind of illicit goods is never specified. Meanwhile, two plainclothes LAPD are nearby staking out a group of corner prostitutes in what looks to be for them a fairly routine vice bust. One of the call girls, Carmen, spots the cops across the street and attempts to warn off her would-be John, an older white man who clearly is not from the area. N.D. looks out the motel room window and spots the cops, so Charles and N.D. make a run for it. Despite the fact that they've broken no obvious laws, the two detectives drop what they're doing and give them chase. N.D. gets away, but Charles is nabbed by Detective Jim Cunningham. As a crowd of locals form to see what the commotion is about, Detective Harry Freeman, the cop who lost N.D., is publicly ridiculed by Carmen for his bungling of N.D.'s arrest. In response, Freeman begins savagely beating Charles and attempts to do the same to Carmen in full view of the crowd and is only prevented from inflicting more harm by Cunningham and Carmen's gray-haired John. The cops throw Charles into a police van, where Freeman resumes beating the handcuffed Charles out of view of the locals. Cunningham, who has initially cut a kinder and more sympathetic profile than his partner, chooses at first to look away and then attempts to intervene and gets accidentally head-knocked by Freeman for his troubles. Freeman takes advantage of Cunningham's unconsciousness to attempt to, and possibly succeed at, castrating Charles with his knife. We then flash back to the earlier that morning, when Freeman finds that his wife is stepping out on him with a well-to-do black man, thus partially explaining his extreme and unhinged racist animus towards Charles Murray. Shortly after making the discovery about his wife, Freeman is called away on another job, defusing a dirty bomb with that same knife. Later that night, after the incident in the police van, Freeman confronts his wife, Christina, about her infidelity, and she launches into a humiliating tirade in which she informs him that he's been unable to satisfy her sexually for some time. At Charles's trial for assaulting a police officer, though in truth he never laid a glove on either of them, we learn that Carmen's gray-haired would-be trick is in fact the judge presiding over the case. Freeman concocts a story out of whole cloth that makes Charles out to be the aggressor and blames him for Cunningham being knocked out with neither Cunningham nor the judge contradicting Freeman. While the DA, in the midst of hearing Freeman's testimony, launches into a bizarre ad hoc law and order soliloquy comparing Charles to a, quote, maniac with, quote, devilish bricks and, quote, diabolical guns. It's clear that Charles never had a chance. After being railroaded into three years in prison, which is encapsulated by a series of harrowing black and white stills a la Chris Marker's La Jetée, Charles Murray returns to Compton, where it appears very few people are happy to see him. His gal Twyla has left him for N.D., who has now morphed into a major drug pusher and nightclub owner known as the Notorious N.D. He initially pretends to be happy to see Charles, but then he has his goons tune Charles up for being, quote, disrespectful. Even the respite Charles finds when he returns to his childhood home is short-lived. Though his mother and younger brother Tito are genuinely glad he's back, Charles soon learns that Tito is dealing for N.D., casting a dark cloud over the home front. Page two. Jesus. <clears throat> Sorry. More positively, in a chance meeting at N.D.'s nightclub, Charles runs into Carmen, who turns out to be a kind-hearted woman as well as one sexy dame, and the two almost instantly become a couple. Carmen chucks the sex trade for a day job, but Charles's pride is repeatedly stung by his difficulties in finding work. It turns out that most places in the area are hesitant to offer gainful employment to ex-cons. He also continues to suffer from a painful, though unspecified, infirmity stemming from Freeman's mutilation of him. After seeing Freeman on the local news, Charles locates his home and enacts his revenge in a two-pronged attack. First, he poses as a utility man in order to gain entry to Freeman's house and casts an almost Vodun-like spell over Christina Freeman. While she's in this sort of fugue state, Charles fucks Christina, giving her at last the sexual ecstasy her husband can't provide for her. 
Then, in the second part of his plan, Charles returns that night, after being led in by the still-hypnotized Christina, to accost Freeman with his mutated penis, which can now grow to several dozen feet and has prehensile qualities, the better with to strangle Freeman to death in his bed. We're led to believe that this supernatural ability was brought about by Freeman's still radioactive knife three years before and had lain dormant until being triggered by Charles seeing Freeman on TV. A few days later, Charles repeats this ritual and strangles to death the pitiless and verbose DA while his hypnotized wife Annabelle looks on in ghastly delight. By this point, Detective Cunningham is on the case, sensing a connection between the two killings, and is eventually tipped off by an unscrupulous psychiatrist who seems to positively delight in this clear violation of doctor-patient confidentiality, and who describes a conversation with Charles Murray in which Charles described his, quote, penis delusions. Cunningham races to the home of the judge and thwarts his death at the hands of Charles in just the nick of time. In the chase that ensues, Charles is trapped on the roof of the judge's apartment building and threatens to jump. Cunningham attempts to talk him down, and Charles reveals that he planned to kill Cunningham last because, in Charles's words, Cunningham is a Pontius Pilate by allowing all this evil to be perpetrated on Charles. Carmen is brought in to help negotiate Charles off the ledge, but after finally being briefed by the cops as to the gruesome tortures that Charles has undergone, both physically and societally, Carmen shouts to Charles, jump. Whew. So I, I want to say right off the bat, that summary was, well, very good. And not only was it very good, but thank you. Uh, I've watched this movie four or five times, and you pointed something out that I did not catch every time I watched it. Probably because I was intoxicated for at least half of those times I viewed it. Like, <laughs> um, like we do. Yeah, but I don't think I ever clued in on the fact that that's the entire importance of the bomb sequence, is that it's the same knife. Uh, because I always find that sequence to be hilarious uh, and hokey in, uh, you know, in that in its very low-budget presentation, uh, especially for where and how it's kind of spliced into this narrative, where things are barely off the ground yet, but also it has to... Yeah. Yeah, anyway, I just, I never quite figured that out, even though, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So I think that's <laughs> hilarious. So Well, anyway. uh, as it turns out, um, Fanaka considered it super hokey too, and he originally had envisioned it, he said, to be almost like a 50s movie where they blame everything on radioactivity, like, you know, giant ants and them and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing, too, is that whenever I watch this movie, particularly because of the opening credits, I always thought this was supposed to be more supernatural than mm. sci-fi. Not to say that you can't read it either way, obviously, because there's a lot of weird shit happening, like from, like you said, the weird trance-like nature of uh his commanding of the housewife mm -hmm. so i mean there there is room there for uh a slight ambiguity mostly just out of the fact that it just doesn't matter it's all a stand-in for other things that are larger than these uh literal manifestations of craziness <laughs> so yeah, anyway that, yeah that's just that's just very interesting I, I just wanted to get that out of the way before we even uh, uh get into it but sure yeah, let's get into it. I all right. do you mind if I go first? Uh no, not at all. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I absolutely love this movie. Um I, I probably say this a lot, but I think this movie is fantastic. I think I first of all, it's one of the angriest movies I think I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh not necessarily in the characters themselves, though obviously that does manifest uh at times throughout the movie, but from the page to screen, this is a a warrior, you know, battle cry mm -hmm. in, in a lot of ways that other black exploitation movies were more quote unquote um <sighs> 
I don't want to say the word complacent, but maybe slightly more resigned to being black exploitation. It's not so much that they weren't talking about systemic issues or anything like that, but it always came back to, and you know, well, that's the man, baby, you know, mm-hmm. where this is uh, shouting that from a literal rooftop, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, as we see bookended in this movie ad nauseum. And I think it's just a dazzling movie from start to finish. Uh, there's so many audacious choices here that I feel like only a first time filmmaker would think that he's good enough to pull off. Totally. And yet, Jama Fanaka does pull off, despite the fact that he's completely overreaching uh, budget-wise and maybe even talent-wise of a cast, who I like uniformly in general. But obviously, mm-hmm, uh, I think it's clear that most of them either have little or no uh, thespian experience, <laughs> which I actually think adds to part of the film's uh grittiness it has this almost weird cinema verite feel sometimes when you get people who don't know how to act because then they just kind of don't <laughs> you yes. know? and so yeah i think the movie is fantastic i think one of the more audacious choices of this movie is the chronology um, yes jama fanaka does not do a lot of hand-holding when it comes to telling you when we're going backwards and when we're going forwards and you know like that scene that you described in which um the one cop sees his wife's infidelity i think the first time viewing it's very easy to think that that scene is actually just the next scene after he takes charles uh manhood or whatever because in reality you're also thinking that possibly the opening scene was like maybe something that happened and then right. we move past that, you know, months later or something like that. When in reality, we find out that that's actually the ending of the movie, you know, but there's something about that, that I feel like something we've been talking about uh, as a country in the last year or two, uh, because we all love critical race theory, uh, mm-hmm. is a, the way black narratives have been kind of shifted around and sometimes minimized, sometimes uh, restructured mm-hmm. uh, at the hands of white, quote unquote, leaders. <laughs> and we, we've learned, albeit way too slowly, that a lot of times that all of this stuff, uh, you know, the, the sins of our past and uh, the trauma we passed down, it is not generational in the sense that it happens in waves. Rather, it is something that is just perpetual, you know. Yes. It is something that is never ending and it is something that is uh, happening ad nauseum uh, with little to no progress actually being made, no matter what lip service is being presented. And I think that's what this structure uh, really hits home, is that you think you're going in a a forward line in reality, (laughs) you find yourself looping backwards uh, to where you started. Yes. Not in any kind of weird, surreal way, but just in that kind of like, haven't we been here before type commentary on on progress and its inability to actually take effect and so i i really commend jama fanaka for going all out with that uh, his first time out as a filmmaker um i think the <laughs> the the central conceit of this movie on paper is uh just it's such a grindhouse tagline mm-hmm. you know black guy with super big dick chokes out white people who he wants to get revenge at but fanaka is not interested in actually selling the movie as such both promotionally but also even within its own movie um we're not really given that information you know we can maybe glean that that's happening but that's a that's a stretch if you don't 
<laughs> Without confirmation, that says something more about you if that's what you want uh, wholeheartedly <laughs> believe before it's confirmed. And, you know, by the time it is revealed that that's, uh, you know, what's happening, it plays as this kind of horror film reveal that is so so knowing without being winking uh, yeah. it is this kind of gotcha moment where it is both hysterical because it is i mean just that prop alone uh is just wonderful and <laughs> but also um genuinely feels like it is coming from a place of uh something truly nasty and uncomfortable about our society because that you know black virility uh as being signifier of something to be afraid of by white men is like that is a that is a thing i mean mm -hmm. that's never not been a thing it, you know and people have gotten lynched because of mm -hmm. that uh, black people i should say have gotten lynched like a not minutes worse mm -hmm. so the idea that fanaka has essentially made in a movie where he's like fuck it fine it, it's real yeah the boogeyman is real you know mm -hmm. and yeah. not only is it real though but you can trace the origins back to actual hate being perpetrated against charles so it's not just that it's real but it actually stems from the actions of white men and hate against him uh it's just it's such a great movie such a great uh reveal um so much about this work so i think i'll cut off my opening thoughts there but uh just in general i think this movie is so great it it has a lot of what you would probably i think want out of like a black exploitation movie and that it's got a great soundtrack some great locale uh filming you know there's that montage in the kind of middle after he gets out mm -hmm. uh, where you i assume fanaka just went literally on the streets of where he you know either knew the area intimately or whatever because he knew where people were gathered and you know how to make that whole thing feel very lived in and whatnot Definitely. although it is kind of funny because even I, I still think he's a fanaka is a humorist at heart because while i do think it's an angry film uh he's just got such a wicked sense of humor there's some scenes where like amidst all that where there's kind of I think not just hints, but certainly indications of like poverty and whatnot in these communities. There's also a moment when a child that he's coming home is walking down the sidewalk and like almost, and this is unfortunate because, you know, it doesn't mean the same thing anymore, but I'm still going to say it is like Bill Cosby-esque dad with these two boys yes. uh, who are like fighting and he's like, you know, you can't hear what he's saying, but he's like taking them both under his arms and he's like, oh, let's all get along. I just got out of jail, little boy. You know? right. And it's this like weirdly wholesome moment that it's just kind of funny because it's almost something that just doesn't actually exist. And um, Charles is kind of high off of his own supply uh only to be brought back down to earth uh pretty much as soon as he starts living again unfortunately due to uh who he is and the, the circumstances surrounding uh where he lives and 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 what uh he was born with so yeah those are those are my opening thoughts but uh i just i absolutely love this movie and i think it's such a wild one to show to people because you kind of <laughs> don't want to spoil it i think it's like a crazy twist but it certainly has an effect if you don't know that this is that movie. But you also don't know if people are going to truly connect with it prior to that. Like if, if people are just going to find it boring because yeah, of course, like it's not the best written, it's not the best plotted or whatever, but there's nothing about this movie that is not audacious for me in every frame. Yeah, so true, Dan, what, what, what do you think? You know, I'm really glad you mentioned the 
the way the larger black community is pictorialized is, is, is very much like an extended family, you know? I mean, not to say that they get along, because like families don't always get along. But yeah, I love that shot of the Charles, you know, kind of joshing around with the two kids. And then he checks in on the guys shooting craps and, you know, whatever. And I mean, and you just get the feeling everybody sort of knows everybody. I mean, even the pimp, he knows Charles just got out of prison. He knows who he is. And he know, everybody knows all this stuff. And I do love those, um, I'm guessing probably Super 8 shots that montage of, of watts you know and my favorite one there's a shot near the end of just the, a suit and tie standing outside his front door reading the newspaper and the headline shouts black and white <laughs> it's like what was that <laughs> but yeah and it, you know there's even that beautiful um tr uh, truck shot that single truck shot past the various nightclub tables conversations uh, it, which I think is an homage to um, this really famous push into various drinkers at tables in the silent film uh, Wings uh, from 1927. It's like one of those shots that you still wonder, like, how the hell did they do that? That's beautiful. And so I think that is uh, Fanaku was definitely a, a student of film history. I, I feel like that was his little comment there. But yeah, I uh, I did not know the reveal was... I did not know anything about it. In fact, you and I had talked about the film a week earlier, and you had mentioned, oh, well, there's a supernatural element. I didn't even know that was in the movie. So well, uh, I almost blew it because, uh, not that it would have been whatever, but when we were doing the Sex World episode and you uh, <laughs> had to bring up your trauma, but when you... <laughs> I'm uh, triggered. Yes, when you uh, let the audience in on your phobia of penises, I almost then blurted out, well, good luck with the ending of uh, Welcome Home, Brother Charles uh, as a joke. But then I was like, no, wait, that would give away the ending of Welcome Home, Brother Charles. So. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, the joke has to be sacrificed for, for the greater good, you know, and I, you, you made the right choice because I was very... Ain't that the truth? I was very glad I was surprised, you know? Um and I'm glad you brought up the frame story, too, because the form of the frame story is very much like you said, the message. It is very much this idea of a situation looping on itself and, and just this tragedy constantly repeating, you know. And I think so in that sense, the frame story for this makes more sense than a frame story in almost any other film. So it adds. So the form and the message really rhyme nicely. And I also thought it was very interesting. The, um, the I guess the continuity switches. When we cut to uh, Freeman and Cunningham and they're doing some surveillance, I honestly thought the same thing. I thought, well, maybe this is months later because they seem to be getting along awfully well for one guy accidentally knocking the other guy out just a few minutes ago, er earlier. And I thought that was very audacious. It, just the idea of flashbacks that aren't immediately obviously flashbacks is something, of course, makes me think of Tarantino and, of course, Egoyen. But even like Der Derek Sanfrance, um, Park Chan-wook, um, Gus Van Zandt's uh, Elephant, um, and Mike Nichols is closer. I wonder how the audiences handled the whole chronological switcheroo, because it was very unusual. Um, I, I can't think of anyone, really. I mean, maybe Nicholas Rogue back then, but even he wasn't necessarily skewing the chronology that much. He would just not clue you into when he was switching something around. So I don't know. I'm I'm very intrigued by that. And with somebody as smart and um, confident as Fanaka at the helm, you know that it was intentional because it's, yeah. there, there's no way that it couldn't have either had uh, one of those very silly, wavy transition effects <laughs> or 
or even if he didn't want to go that route, like zooming in on a calendar date or, you know, just whatever, sure. like he, he would have been able to make it work on this budget, you know, whatever. Uh, so the fact that he doesn't do it is, uh, it's very disorienting and it's, um, it's very, it's just very bold. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it feels a lot like that moment in the, the man who fell to earth where basically, uh, the, the alien has this major reversal in his, in the plot. I should say it that way. And then we immediately cut to a new scene and, uh, we are given no clue that it's many months later and that all this stuff has changed. Again, Nicholas Rogue, he was very ahead of his time in that regard. But yeah, I, I wondered that too. It's, it's a, I, I, to the point where I was like, Oh, did I screw something up here? Did I, did I accidentally, you know, but I mean, with the vinegar syndrome stuff, it's always, um, all, all the chapters are reels. And so this one has, I think five or six. A whatever. great touch that I always love on their discs. I know. I love it too. I mean, for me, it makes it a little harder to jump around, but I think it's just such a brilliant conceit. I love it. So I knew it was correct, even though, you know what I mean? So I, I guess what I should do is I'd like to talk a little about, cause you mentioned, um, black exploitation and, I want to talk a little about that too, and the ways that Fanaka was responding to black exploitation. Yeah, and uh, basically, he was part of a a group of black, some and sometimes African, as in from Africa, uh, filmmakers. Uh, they were all students at UCLA in, in like circa late '60s, and they were known as the LA Rebellion. So they were sort of like trying to create a film movement that was similar to what you would call third cinema. Uh, so like first cinema is considered Hollywood, second cinema is art house, and third cinema is this kind of international movement starting in the 60s, mostly based in the global south, or what we used to call the third world, you know. Uh, and it's overtly political, overtly working class, and they were trying, Ellie Rebellion was trying to create an American version. So bringing, bringing that all back home, and that mode of filmmaking and that radical left-wing consciousness. So anyway, but the, several of the people in LA Rebellion did go on to uh, pretty uh, great artistic heights. Some of the more famous ones, you've got Charles Burnett, um, To Sleep With Anger is absolutely masterful. Um, Julie Dash, Daughters of the Dust from the same year, also masterful. Some other people I wasn't as familiar with, uh, Ben Caldwell, uh, Haile Garima, uh, Larry Clark, not the guy who did kids and bully uh that not that guy this is the guy who did a movie called passing through and of course uh, jama fanaka and these guys were all they were very tight-knit they were very reciprocal they all worked on each other's movies like charles burnett as i say the director of um sleep with anger he uh was actually one of the camera operators for brother charles so that's interesting and uh ben caldwell he was the black and white stills photographer for that montage in the middle, um, the one I said sort of legete esque. So these guys, they were they they all worked on each other's stuff. They acted in each other's movies, but most of the time, you know, they it's rare to see a film movement where the people all really know each other and all are from the same specific area. Usually, it's like something a critic creates after the fact. Like, okay, well, these guys, we'll call them this, you know, because but it's very rare to see a film movement where they actually did know each other and they were consciously trying to create something from the very beginning. And these are among the first black students to graduate UCLA's film program. Um, Fanaka sort of tongue in cheek. Well, not really, actually. He credits affirmative action for his college career because it was a very new concept. And uh, he says, uh, this is a little quote here about affirmative action. He says, Affirmative action just said, hey, you blacks have been kept down for so long, and now we're going to try to use some type of formula in order to give you a chance to catch up. And that was how I got into UCLA, through an 
affirmative action UCLA outreach. Many of my fellow filmmakers had started calling me the poster boy for affirmative action. <laughs> and mind you, these were all black people too, but they were, they felt that he was the one who like, man, he really figured it out, you know? Uh, but unfortunately, despite getting a leg up, uh, it wasn't really all roses for black Latinx LGBTQ students. Uh, some less than flattering stories about 60s, 70s UCLA professors and their curriculum, administration's attitudes, you know, just issues of open racism. Like professors would encourage some of the film students not to make films. <laughs> you know, it's just even uh, even for a lot of uh, uh, white people as well. Uh, Michael Childers, who was uh, John Schlesinger's life partner and a really great photographer. He said he learned more in one year working as Schlesinger's personal assistant on Midnight Cowboy than in five years of UCLA film school. So, yeah, not a, some really not so great stories uh, there about that. So the thing is, is that black exploitation was very much underway by 1975. You know, when this movie was was uh, finished. Yeah, I will say that I earlier said early black exploitation, but I do actually want to take that back because I I was trying to figure out the timeline, and yeah, Sweet Sweetback's badass song came out in 71. Oh wow, okay. So yeah, it had basically been underway. It looks like just looking at the timeline itself, it was kind of right in the middle. I mean, Dolomite was basically going to come out right after this, if not around the same time, which means that right. black exploitation was already starting to kind of fold in on itself uh, as a genre that can now uh, maybe not parody, but uh, eat its own tail. Right, right, exactly. And well, that was one of the things that was so interesting about Fanon was out of the LA rebellion. Well, okay. So first off, I should say that um, there were some contemporary attitudes in the black community towards black exploitation that were very negative. Um, for instance, the term black exploitation, I found out it was uh, coined by uh, Junius Griffin, who is exec director of uh, the NAACP's Hollywood branch. He, he, he created it as a pejorative. He said the transformation from the stereotype step and fetch it to super ninja on the screen is just another form of cultural genocide. And another guy, Clyde Taylor, who was the co-founder of the African Film Society out of San Francisco, he was withering in his criticism. He said Shaft was a pre-disco movie opera in which characters, instead of singing, spoke an oratorio of bad dude pseudo-black English. <laughs> so, I mean, there, so it was not considered an objective good by a lot of people. And the reason I'm giving you some of these quotes is the... In theory, the LA rebellion like personified or typified this hostile reaction. Um, it, but that's not really true. I mean, that's sort of the history as it's told now. But for instance, uh, there's a great critic and historian archivist, Jan Christopher Horak, who wrote a great book called LA Rebellion Creating a New Black Cinema. And he said, you know, LA Rebellion does not merely have an oppositional relationship to black exploitation. Rather, the LA Rebellion engaged with, responded to, and in some cases drew from black exploitation as the most visible mode of black representation of the period. I mean, it employed a lot of black people. In, in many ways, it was a golden age um, for black people in the cinema workplace. And really, nobody engaged and or critiqued black exploitation more than Jama Fanaka. I mean, the other LA Rebellion guys. They would sort of passingly reference it, but they were much more arty. Fanaka was trying to just make films as cheaply as possible and just get them out there, basically. So again, uh, Horak says um, Fanaka took a more direct approach, seemingly embracing black exploitation while turning its stereotypes and plots upside down and consciously subverting specific genre considerations. Uh, critiqued Hollywood's view of African Americans through self-conscious irony, parodies, subverts, and critiques black exploitation, genre conventions, and expectations. Uh, Horak uses this great phrase through the shorthand of genre, which is such a 
perfect description of so many exploitation filmmakers strengths you know in fact he's uh, he's got a quote i have to i have to quote this because it's so good it's in the vinegar syndrome extras for brother charles he has a little half hour tribute to jama fanaka who sadly passed a few years ago and um he makes a really illuminating comment about exploitation films as a societal mirror of sorts which is so perfect he says as an archivist and a historian i've always been interested in these films that are kind of outside the canon so I've always been happy to watch exploitation films because they are, even though sometimes they are made quite crudely and they use genre devices, it's not really high art in that sense. They have many qualities in terms of telling us things about what's really going on in society. And I feel like Fanaka does that all over the place. I mean, not just black exploitation, he's several genres. You know, I told you he had the idea of it was going to be like a 50s radiation uh, nuclear scare type thing. That was part of it for him. And he's also melding the whole like, you know, guy just got out of prison, trying to go straight genre. And obviously the revenger genre. It's pretty heady stuff, man, especially when the film's been underway quite a while before the sci-fi element shows up. I mean, I that kind of whiplash genre change made me think a little of uh, Guillermo del Toro's um work or like Tarantino's from Dust Till Dawn. And you know Tarantino saw this movie, man. You know he loves this stuff. So it it's interesting the way he messes with the uh, conventions, I guess. I completely agree. And I think what you're saying about how it kind of subverts uh, expectations, but also that it tries to carve out something as a reaction to black exploitation, I think is spot on because one thing that I noticed, especially when I rewatched it uh, for the podcast, is that there's some spaces here that are directly about white people yeah like i mean obviously it stems from a lot of our issues with uh systemic but also personalized and internalized uh racism and whatnot but you know the the scenes in which uh we're in like the households with uh the cop and his wife you know um that is you know that's a rare thing i think at least in in black exploitation in general because typically white people were portrayed only as uh you know like the scene we see earlier in the movie as uh in the car mm -hmm. and and for good reason <laughs> it's a reaction to something obviously <laughs> um but i think what's interesting is that fanaka does take us inside the homes and shows us how this toxic racism infects things that have nothing to do with black people like people's marriages yeah and the idea that it both depicts the problem as something that is larger than any one person, you know, in the way that is quite literally infectious disease, mm -hmm. but also something that is incredibly personal. And it is a choice and a learned response uh, that we either pick up or we, we don't. But yeah, the, the scene with the, the guy and his wife, the, there's a lot to be unpacked on white fragility in that in that scene where he almost uh, almost murders his own wife. Uh, and then the wife calls him out and says, you're not even man enough to finish the job. Right. And then runs out of the house. That's what I mean by this is one of the angriest movies I've ever seen. This is a scathing indictment of both racism, but also patriarchy and how all of these things uh, quite literally make us all worse off. And that mm -hmm. in, in the grand scheme of things, uh, we we are all worse off because of it, because right. we may 
get a better job than the person sitting next to us. But then, you know, behind closed doors, we're actually still shitty people because of it. And we don't even recognize that it's because we perpetuate these systems and buy into this uh, fake American dream. Mm -hmm. I I just found that to be fascinating that there were still these weird pockets of... uh, uh, shall we say, white spaces in in, yeah. <laughs> in Fanaka's movie. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, and it's almost like another genre element. He's co-opting it and, and kind of standing on its head. Um, you know, the, the domestic drama. Um, again, I hate to keep bringing it up, but I mean, you know, like Cirque or something like that. And I, I mean, obviously, the Revenger cliches, he really stands those on their head. And it just, there's a really unusual sense of pacing and sort of frustrations of typical genre constructions. Like, for instance, it's actually like 33 minutes before Charles even comes home, if you will. I mean, that's pretty interesting. And like I said, the revenge cliches are central to the movie because, I mean, revenge doesn't provide Charles any kind of relief, literally. I mean, I kept thinking about this um, couplet by uh, T-Bone Burnett. Uh, where he says, uh, when you're out for revenge, dig two graves. When you hide from the truth, it comes in waves. And I was like, I kept thinking that over and over. I mean, part of the climax is uh, tragedy is one could argue that after killing Freeman, Charles could have stopped and he likely would have gotten away with it because it was so weird and so out there and so hard to grasp what the motivation was. But he doesn't seem to get any lasting release from the killings and he keeps at it and he continues to take chances and uh <clears throat> overextend himself if you will <laughs> uh sorry there's probably going to be a couple jokes like that tonight i'm really it's it's unavoidable at this point oh brother <laughs> but i think you're right about the anger too and i i think out of these disparate genres and these threads he makes I would say it's an almost perfect work of despairing uh, nihilism. And I don't mean in the traditional philosophical sense of nihilism, like, oh, life's meaningless, but in the sense of personal hopelessness. I mean, Fanaka references uh, Louis Ferdinand Céline, a book called Death and the Installment Plan is, well, it, among other things, it's, it's, uh, it's a novel about the growing feeling that you'll never find true connection with other human beings. It's a very pessimistic text. And interestingly, the short film Fanaka made right before Brother Charles was called A Day in the Life of Willie Faust or Death on the Installment Plan. And then he references it again in Brother Charles in one of, I think, the wisest moments in the film, which is um, excerpted in the intro, uh, where he's, you know, he's basically saying, I'm not going to about to spend the rest of my life on the white man's installment plan. It's a, a very knowing moment and clearly, again, a reference to this is a very despairing novel by Celine. So I feel like that oppressive mood is in the dialogue, but it's also in the images, you know, like that absurd image. I wonder what you could think of on the rooftop of that giant pile of chairs and picnic tables. They're all smashed and stacked on top of each other for no reason. It looks like a sculpture by like uh, Dennis Oppenheim or, um, uh, Christian Boltonsky's, uh, No Man's Land piece, where it's all these like rags and things stacked in the enormous piles, you know? There's just this absurdity in that right in the midst of this very realistic looking movie, right? And, and, and the absurdity in, in the dialogue, like there's a scene, the final exchange between Charles and, uh, Detective Cunningham, um, they both argue one point of view on the concept of trying and failing, if you will, to make sense of things. And then 
seamlessly they switch positions. They switch point of views and argue the opposites at each other. It's very odd. And even just the way the film starts, I mean, with that, again, no pun intended, that arresting opening shot, you know, of just the two of them looking at each other. You don't even know he's on the roof yet. And he's just, they're looking at each other and it's, it's, they're just contemplating each other silently. And we're kind of initially robbed of establishing shots. And so there's no real contextual meaning, which gives it an eeriness. It's, it's almost like, um, almost feels like Resnazian, like last year at, at Marienbad or something like that. And as you said, it, it, even the structure, it does feel like a, a loop. I think um, you referred to it a couple weeks ago. I think the word you used was purgatorial. I thought that was a really good word for it. So, I mean, so there's this this despair and this feeling of hopelessness and like you're trapped in a loop you will never get out of, which essentially is true. I mean, there's that hideously sad last image of Carmen yelling jump. And I mean, can we really blame her? I was going to say, let's unpack that scene in general. I mean, well, yeah. I the first time I saw it, I was like kind of gobsmacked because it seemed that that's another moment where it seemed like it subverted uh, genre expectation. You know, instead of like the shaft type heroic figures of these uh, genre exploits, you know, here we have Charles, who in a lot of ways is not not extraordinary. You know, mm-hmm. um, he he didn't go to jail because he was the best at pushing drugs. He didn't land um, on his feet, but he also was able to kind of start picking back up a domestic life, and he just kept pushing and kept shoving and whatnot, and then for the final scene for it to end this way with her shouting jump. It just, it really took me by surprise. Uh, not in a, where I was like, what are you doing? But I was just like, shit, you know, like it's, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I'm not, I mean, I'm not in a position to say that anyone should ever advocate for anything like that. But in the context of this narrative, particularly being a stand in for a, larger struggle than one character struggle um i completely understand that kind of uh defeated attitude and i and i thought it was an extremely bold choice to punctuate a movie like this and Definitely. and to kind of rebuke the idea of black exploitation in general that we should somehow romanticize these genre conventions and that this is okay as long as we are in on the joke uh i i just thought it was astounding well, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's like if if 25% of what we saw in this movie is accurate uh, for what people of color were facing in the 70s in LA, I can see how suicide could become a thing devoutly wished for, you know? And I, even that quote at the very end, um, I, I don't know if it even provides any real hope because at first I thought it did. And then when I watched it again, I was like, I don't know. I, I don't know. It, it, the quote is, a, let them indulge their pride of thinking I am destroyed as a comfort to them. Let it be. And um, I just got to mention this because, as an aside, but I think it's, uh, well, just interesting, I guess. Um, I mentioned Jan Christopher Horak a couple of times. Um, I had a really interesting correspondence with him, with Chris, as he prefers to be called. I couldn't find the quote source. So I reached out to him and I thought, well, hey, you know, you, this guy, I, I'm reading this book you co-wrote. And um, he's got this really interesting tribute to Fanaka um, in the Vinegar Syndrome special features. As I said, I really love that quote about exploitation that I, that I said earlier. And so I couldn't find the source. So I wrote him and I said, do you know? Because I'm like, I thought, well, maybe it's 
book of Psalms, but I couldn't find anything there. And then I said, well, it also kind of reminded me a little bit of like some of the more like um, westernized, uh, idiosyncratic uh, patina of like an Ezra Pound or a Robert Oppenheimer translation of Hindu scriptures where it's like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, and then Chris wrote me back and he goes, you know, I, I've had a lot of conversations with, you know, Fanaka over the years, they were, they became very good friends. And he says, I don't remember us ever talking about it. And he's like, I think at first I was thinking it was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but he's like, but that he came up and he handed on that too. So it's possible Fanaka just wrote it and put it in quotation marks to kind of lend it a sort of, you know, finalizing panache, you know? So to this day, I have no idea where it comes from, but again, it just contributes to this feeling of just despair and sadness and, and it's over before it begun, you know, that kind of feeling. Well, I will say if you're listening and you know where it's from, please reach out and tell us, uh, mm-hmm. we would love to know. So just a little plug for that. You can always email us at projectploitation at gmail.com. Uh, I am the steward over there at that email, and I will gladly uh, read any of your thoughts, whether you uh, know that or you just have some comments on a movie or complaints about Dan. Thank you. Right. And um, I will um, promptly dismiss them and not care. So <laughs> That's why I'm uh, in charge of the email account. Actually, it's kind of true. I mean, anyway, but you're right. I mean, uh, uh, in this kind of statement of, of personal hopelessness or nihilism, whatever you want to say, there is, of course, like you said, some pretty uh, wickedly satirical statements about representation, obviously. Um, I mean, like Fanaka basically said he – well, I have a quote. He says – he's basically talking about like how movies are so amazing because you have people sitting in a dark room and you have their full attention. And he's like, okay, so you have this power to say something and to influence their thoughts. And he says – So I wanted to use that to make a serious statement about this ridiculous myth that was generated by the white slave owner because they were scared that the white women would want to have surreptitious sex with the slave. And it backfired on them. (laughs) Instead of scaring them, it intrigued them. You know what I mean? And so that was my first film, Welcome Home, Brother Charles, he says. And from the opening shot of the credits, I mean, you you talked about the... the yeah. I know. I love that theme, dude. It's so simple and exceedingly creepy. It's, it's Fanaka wrote it himself, you know? Yeah, it's all that. That was yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, so he he just wrote the theme, not the rest of the music, but he and it's distorto saxophone, and I want to say like primate sounds, maybe. And then it turns seamlessly into like a strong gust of wind, you know, because then we're on the roof. Um, but it's like the music is in itself a beautiful statement about racism because it's like it's like i said it's part you know music concrete but it's also a part parody of like i think what a clueless white film composer in the 60s or 70s like what he would imagine were the sounds of darkest africa <laughs> you know so it's really effective in that to the point where if i didn't know who wrote it it could be mistaken for a genuine piece of vintage racism. <laughs> it's it's pretty incredible, but it, it works so well. I mean, with that shot just zooming glacially slow towards, and then they've got the spotlight on it. So there's no doubt in your mind where we're headed. We're heading towards this thing, uh, which I guess perhaps most <clears throat> the most respectable appellation I could give it is a fertility statuette. Uh so it, it's interesting, though, because uh, again, I mean, obviously, 
it ties in hugely to the movie, although when you first start watching, you don't know. But that statuette is kind of interesting, too, because it looks – and this kind of ties into the, to the score, too, where it's like it doesn't look to me like a real actual uh, historical object. It looks more like a faux object d'art, not an authentic one. Um, I have a friend, uh, Gene, who he collects um, like ceremonial pieces from uh, Papua New Guinea and Indonesia. And he told me once a great way to determine authenticity is like how much wear and tear it's received. And this one doesn't look like it has almost because they would be used every every year or, or often several times a year for various is a totem. And it, this one looks more like it was made to order for the film. So I think there's he's also winking a little on that in the same way that the theme is winking on black representations by white people. <laughs> you know, you even got that great callback near the end where the uh, they dissolve between the pseudo African like primitive totem in the psychiatrist's office, and then it dissolves into that highly European woman breastfeeding her child statuette in the judge's house you know i mean it's just really wickedly satirical and just very clever i completely agree and i i think this is why stem is the future and i think all the arts should be banned Mm -hmm. until we can make some good actual art in this country Uh, agreed (laughs) on that joking note uh, i think we'll really quickly go into a little intermission Mm -hmm. and then we will be back to discuss welcome home brother charles I uh, made dirty calls uh, because I'm a creep. It was only a phone call, but it was a work of art. from that little break. Hope you didn't miss us too much, babies. <laughs> we are discussing Welcome Home, Brother Charles, a uh, film directed and written by Jama Fanaka uh, from 1975. Before the break, we were kind of talking about that opening uh, credit sequence, uh, specifically the theme that plays on that Fanaka composed himself. And of course, that image of that fertility statue maybe that we charitably (laughs) are calling it um but i think that's a good place to start here with is that like you had explained earlier uh in the episode that yeah fanaka's uh, impetus for this movie kind of the germ was to tackle that literal dumb myth of black virility uh in the face of white women and whatnot and what that both does to white women and white men uh, who exist right. <laughs> alongside them. And the fact that this movie goes all in on that, it takes that 
idea seriously, by which I mean it is, I think, still a comedy in those scenes. Like, I think it is a like a, a wicked joke that, you know, Fanaka is behind the camera laughing. But mm-hmm. the other thing is that as a as a white audience, which me and Dan both are. Spoiler. Um, yes, I know. We finally revealed it. <laughs> uh, I know. People were like, I had no idea. Yeah. You people are white? Um, if you couldn't already tell... <laughs> You know, it's one of those things where it's like as a white audience watching this, it's super uncomfortable because I have to then also, and of course it's nothing compared to anything that actual, you know, hate crimes are (laughs) perpetuated against her. So I'm not trying to compare suffering or anything like that, but to watch a movie like this and reconcile with the fact that this isn't something that Fanaka pulled out of a hat. This is a real thing. This is like I had said earlier this is why people died this is why yep. uh people get abused this is like this is toxic hate and it is toxic hate in this case in its most absurd form like yes it can just be downright brutal in other forms but in in here it's it's a literal prop penis choking out the life of <laughs> a white judge and and so on <laughs> and so forth and i find that image to be both striking and hilarious at the same time and hilarious in that great kind of cringe way mm-hmm. where it's like yep i i, I get it uh, uh, i'm sorry uh, <laughs> and, and whatever else you want me to say and so yeah i, I just absolutely love the, the the way this movie it goes all in on that uh gimmick so to speak and in in a way that most of his contemporaries would have went in a completely different direction it would have a front-loaded it yeah this would have been like the movie itself would have been called Black Dick or something, you know, like <laughs> it would have like that's exploitation in a nutshell, right? Is to come up with this idea that people are like, well, as we quoted from uh, Craig Ferguson earlier in another episode, well, I got to watch that. <laughs> um, it's you got know, Kung Fu, <laughs> karate, everything. Karate, um, oh. But it, it would have been like one of those things where it's like, okay, that's our marketing. Uh, also, that's, you know, like almost new world picture style. Mm-hmm. We need at least five deaths by it. Yep. We need at least one sex scene with it mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yes. and, and so on and so forth. And And there is not even a hint of actually, ironically, there's not even a hint of exploitation in this movie. With regards to that angle, you know, True. the the moment itself obviously is is an indulgence, but it's hardly exploitative because of the way that it was concealing it from the very beginning. So that by the time it does reveal it, it's more of an uncomfortable joke that you didn't consent to be a part of <laughs> when you sat down to watch the movie. And I absolutely love the way that that yeah that that reveal is handled. Well, yeah, and uh, you know, it's funny um, it, the fact that we don't see it the first time it allows for the emotion to be unmediated by humor in a sense because you're watching this rage and this anger and this just consuming want of revenge you know so it's interesting that they'd only show it the second time which is i think it was a really brilliant move and i wouldn't maybe have necessarily thought of it myself even but it, it really works and also i mean during those scenes you've got the uh the lighting on charles is so similar, in fact, to the idol in the credits, where you have this totally dark background. I mean, everything's just swallowed in darkness, you know. Oh, and then, of course, actually, we get a we get a very similar camera move from the credits. We get it in the prison montage, where we even get the same music. We get the same theme playing, and you're hearing this kind of these footsteps walking, and it's you're you know we're just kind of 
walking down this prison block. The camera's pushing, or rather trucking slowly, you know? So we get a rhyming camera movement there. And uh, as I said, I love, by the way, that brilliant use of still black and white photos, um, you know, Legete, of course, but it also reminded me of my Catholic grade school days where we would watch these things. I can understand that. <laughs> I'm going to leave that alone. <clears throat> as I was saying, um, well, we would watch these things they called film strips where they'd project onto a screen, a series of still images, and you'd have an LP record playing. That was the sound. And then when the record made a beeping sound, it alerted you to switch to the strip's next image, you know? So it was almost like that, but like a, in a monstrous sense, because it was it's such an emotionally unnerving moment in the film, you know? I feel like I know what you're talking about, actually. Um, I feel like I've, uh, not in church, but I've definitely seen that, maybe in a school setting somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's honestly, by the time I was in school, it was ancient technology, but Catholic schools are typically about 30 to 20 years behind everyone else. I mean, we were still using ditto sheets and, yeah. you know, all that. And so, and uh, Abacus says, no, I'm kidding about that. Anyway, so, but yeah, that whole idea of the satirizing of white assumptions and black myths really gets amplified and underlined by actually the score proper um, at a point when he first uh, begins his revenge. We start to hear this very mysterious, sparse amount of woodblocks right before the first hypnosis scene. And we never heard those before. And as well as you hear chimes and bongos and kettle drums and metal cranking, you know, the fun trick noisemaker-esque per percussion. So it's almost like a joke on on voodoo in a sense. It, it, you know, it's it's all very Hollywood voodoo, though. Like I said, it's a white film composer from the Times idea of it, which actually made me think of this great Eugene Chadbourne's Voodoo Vengeance, which actually is would be a great title for this film that sums it up pretty well. You I was going to say, the alternate title was Soul Vengeance, which feels right. like capitalizing on past black exploitation trends and then mixing it with, you know, other trends. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, but, you know, like what Fanaka said uh, in that quote I was reading about the cliches about white women, I mean, you know, them being sexually intrigued is really hammered in the act three imagery. Like we have, you know, Freeman's wife in the middle of the day in some pretty provocative dress. She's wearing a sheer blue top, which allows her black bra complete visibility. It's really interesting. So you have this myth of the board housewife's instantaneous sexual availability uh, suggests, well, more than suggested <laughs> during the, well, hypno-fucking scenes, for lack of a better phrase, and with some spectacular editing of close-ups of the mouths, you know? Or what about that really ghoulish expression of glee on Annabelle's face? She's the DA's wife. During a strangulation, it's like really creepy. And then she has this like languid, near-drunken, one might call freshly fucked effect when she's being interviewed later by Cunningham. It's really unsettling. And I loved that. Oh, by the way, I had a quick question for you. What do you think Charles tells the wives to tell the police on the phone after the killings? You know how he tells, I've often wondered because, you know, they're still very much hypnotized at that point. So I'm like, I wonder what he was, what he tells, you know what I mean? I just, I was curious. Yeah. You know, I feel like every time I watch the movie during that scene, that's what I'm wondering. And then the movie, almost due to its disorienting structure and chronology, it flies away from my mind to where I never actually have actual time to think about it while I'm in the headspace to think about it. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know that I have a good interpretation. All I can think of is I think it's, I lean towards something 
with regards to just covering it up in general you know like whatever he's saying is some kind of like just tell the police that it was this you know what i mean or something like that because uh, you know a white woman in distress will be believed uh as long as they're given a script you know well yeah i mean yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, Emmett Till is the, is the most horrendous and infamous example of white woman being believed and, and a very young black kid really paying the price with his life in the most horrible way possible. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned the uh, kind of ex- exploitation-y subject matter, the luridness, and it is true. I mean, but the castration themes, oddly enough, I, do, I just want to mention this. It does have echoes to respectable works like The Sun Also Rises or Sweet Bird of Youth, which are works by two of the most celebrated writers of the 20th century. I mean, that's uh, Hemingway and uh, Tennessee Williams, respectively. So, and, and of course, the other thing, too, is Fanaka, as I was saying, he waits until the second murder to even show it to us. We're unsure, really, for most of the film, the extent of the, the damage. I mean, Fanaka's like, Man, I'm not showing the shark for the first 88 minutes, you know? And by shark, in this case, I mean gargantuan prehensile penis. I mean, that's what I call mine. <laughs> I, I go with crawling king snake. That's just, you know, it's a John Lee Hooker thing. So anyway, um, so I mean, like, we know that Charles reaches for his groin at the moment he recognizes Freeman on the TV. He's, you know, so it's either a phantom pain or a reflexive protective measure, but we don't really know the extent of the damage and damage he got an upgrade <laughs> what's he complaining about i just feel like this is win-win no anyway uh hem. uh but there is some foreshadowing in a very great little tiny sequence and you've seen the film several times so you probably will know what i'm talking about but it's where marlo monte uh, the actor who plays charles he slightly cocks his head to move to the side of like some hanging leaves as he's walking up to twyla's mother's house and then he just lets out a very small neck and eye twitch, just very subtle, like I mean, to the point where I may be imagining it, but I don't think I am. And it's like in one shot, you know, Fanaka tells us two huge things about post-prison Charles, right? One is he's by nature a gentle, non-confrontational person, right? And two, there's something under the surface he so far hasn't even cared to consider that's happened to him, you know? Uh, he even says, he's like, look, I'm just a little bit jumpy when he's talking to his, his mom and his brother. So, and we get that tick, that return to it in Freeman's bedroom when we have Charles looking directly at us. And, and, and again, you know, total darkness all around him, just like in the opening credits. And it's accompanied by this intriguingly ticky little small camera shake. It has this like uncomfortable, like almost undercranked look, like, it's it's an interesting effect, and, it, and, he, and he does it again in the second killing, too. So, it, it's interesting uh, about that. Well, also, and it, I mean, what's so, so unnerving, the, the contrast switches between, like, the like the softly lit pastels of the wife outside the kid's bedroom, you know? And then they cut to him, and he's his face, and he's just enraged. He's like almost, it's almost confounded look on his face, and there's this darkness around him. The contrast between those shots is really striking, to put it lightly. But the funny thing is, and I'm guessing you probably have noticed this too, because you've seen this movie a few times, but Freeman's facial contractions and his like, you know, half intelligible mumbling during the castration attempt is not dissimilar to how Charles looks and sounds during the strangulations. Do you notice that? Like, they're, they're both, there's these mumblings 
and the the face the 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 movement of the of the facial muscles it's very similar i will say that i've not noticed that and i don't mean because it's it's not there or anything like no. that uh that's just something that i would have to chew on i think upon rewatch cuz yeah that is that is food for thought cuz i that, that that's not a lot if if that is true and i and i'm not saying that i don't believe you i'm just saying i mm. don't believe you now um <laughs> well i'll do you one huh. better i've i've got another one too um okay interestingly you'll notice charles and freeman respond similarly to the thought of their women with someone else, yes, they both put their hands around their partner's throats. Now, granted, for Charles, it's it's relatively short, and he doesn't actually try to. Yeah, but yeah. it's interesting. He's like he loses his his composure for a moment, you know. So yeah, there's that's another weird thing. I do remember that. So I do kind of see. I, I see what you're saying because I do think that there is a parallel there, where um, kind of like recently in Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, mm. a movie I love and a movie that I think does a great job in illustrating how racism and misogyny are not parallel battles. <laughs> <laughs> they are very much similar in the sense that they're born out of hate and certainly uh, cyclical perpetuations of uh, awful injustices and systems that... Yeah. Basically, allow it to fester and whatnot. However, um, <laughs> they run in different veins, and um, they're both kind of a, a product of you know something much larger than themselves. So when we see something like Charles enacting a similar kind of violence uh, to his own partner, that um, you know Freeman was going to enact on his own way, you know, I, I definitely think that that is completely intentional. I think that is definitely trying to show you that patriarchy creates a uh, toxic kind of masculinity that knows no race you know i mean yes obviously it's a hard thing to thread the needle on and articulate because of the fact that misogyny can manifest in different ways in different cultures but at the end of the day it also can manifest in the exact same ways <laughs> across different cultures you know right. no one's immune to the base level of of a patriarchal society and and the ill effects that it has, unfortunately, against women and the men who uh, continue to buy into it. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, everyone is degraded by it. I mean, I think you and I talked about this a little during the Black Christmas episode, which is one of the cornerstone principles of feminist theory is that everyone is harmed, that, that both are degraded by both genders. Men get locked in a prison of masculinity and what it's supposed to be or look like, right. um, while women are... I don't want to say victim, but they are like mm -hmm. are victims of the abuse that stems from that image that the men are taught to adhere to. So, yeah, the idea is that, yes, everybody loses. And, and, and I think right. that this movie has that at its heart, too, when it comes to uh, race relations. I mean, I don't think uh, as we see Freeman himself is uh, I'm not that I'm for sure not going to use the word victim, but is a side effect of mm. uh, of his racist beliefs and whatnot, uh, as we talked about earlier, affect his own domesticity mm -hmm. and, and quite literally impact his relationships with uh, the people around him, even when in a lot of ways race doesn't even come into the equation. So it definitely paints it as something that extends beyond just the people that like, for example, hate crimes are perpetuated against. It can also be internalizingly damaging. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, and I guess I should take this moment to say how alarmingly good uh, Ben Bigelow is as Freeman. 
um, especially the scene where he tells his wife he knows about the affair, that Fanaka allows him to be a human being, a bad guy, no doubt about it, but also a multifaceted human being is so different than many of the black exploitation films. Uh, and that's not necessarily a criticism. I mean, you know, when you've had, you know, what, uh, you know, 70 years of uh, white people demonizing black people, uh, and I don't think it's really that big of a deal if a few black exploitation movies have a villainous white man at the end, <laughs> you know. But Fanaka obviously is not interested in that stuff at all. I agree. And I think it's uh, actually indicative of the movie overall in that um, there's always a kind of continuous shift of sympathies, not where we're like, oh, wow, we actually feel bad for this person or something like that right but i mean there are moments i mean in that scene alone you go from him saying like bearing out the fact that he knows that she's cheating on him to then him choking her out to then her yelling at him for not finishing the job so i mean yeah. the, the whiplash alone in the one scene uh which i don't think is actually bad writing but actually just this kind of very icky uh sense of the way toxic masculinity and racism runs rampant in suburbia. Totally. Um, but also even like the scene in which the cops are actually trying to get her to, you know, like obviously in general, uh, this movie has nothing really good to say about cops and for understandable reasons. True. Those guys in that final scene are actually trying to do something good um, and doing it mostly for the sake of doing good. They don't look like they're trying to cover up like it's not like we were introduced to that cop being a buddy of Freeman and therefore now he's trying whatever. Yeah. It just looks like this weirdly human moment where they're like, OK, call her in. Let's. And and what they don't realize is that the the game is already over um, because yeah. they're completely blind to how it's played. Uh, well, not blind, but um, mm. they're they're complicit in in not wanting to think about it. Put it that way. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I find that scene fascinating. Just in, like how weirdly calm it is when they're calling her up and they're trying to actually not just like giving it lip service. Right. It is very eerie. Like I said, almost like an Elaine Resnay's film or something, but. But you're right. I mean, you know, as I said in the summary, um, Charles calls Cunningham Pontius Pilate. And that is exactly right. I mean, what's the point in being a supposedly good person if you don't ever use your power to intervene against evil? You know, uh, I completely <laughs> agree, which is why I started the podcast. Boom. Mic drop. No, these are expensive. That's uh, true. I honestly always think that every time when I see one, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm like, I'm very much my father's son because he always worked with a sound equipment. Not according to this DNA test. God damn it. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it, in a way, Cunningham's more disturbing than Freeman. I mean, <laughs> Freeman's horrible. You know, God, just the haunting. I'll fix you. What a what a phrase to say right before you go to castrate somebody. And of course, in the process, he ends up making Charles quite a bit more powerful by several orders of magnitude. <laughs> so it kind of blew up in his face. The, the worst part of that is when you just said, I'll fix you. It's all I can think of is uh, the ending of uh, a community episode where mm. I think it's a horror episode where they're telling those spooky tales. And one of them is about like 
Chevy Chase's character being like a Dr. Frankenstein and like <laughs> morphing Abed and Troy together. And just in the end credit thing, I think they randomly extend that bit and they're like, you thought whatever, but you only made us stronger. <laughs> and that's, that's all Troy I Troy and Abed <laughs> shooting lava, you know, or whatever, you know, depending on the episode. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, yeah. I mean, how about the fact that this guy's name is Freeman? So his nickname is Free. Yeah. Right. So, kind of like free. I'm like, and his name's Freeman. You know, originally the historical term for a uh, formerly enslaved person. You know, I mean, it's, it really makes you wonder who's the real free man right. in America. Are are we the zombies? Actually, as it turns out, we are the zombies, not the zombies. You know, it's like we're the Walking mm. Dead. Exactly. I was just thinking that. <laughs> I love the people that said that about that show uh, earnestly, as if they've never watched a fucking zombie movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, some zombie movies are just creature features, I'll admit that. Right. But the two Romero films in particular, you know, the right. progenitor of the genre could not be more in line with that. <laughs> that is just funny that somehow... Over the years, we just forget cultural touchstones. Anyway, well, yeah, I agree because I mean, I remember reading like a television critic. I think it was like for a major newspaper. I want to say it was like season five of The Walking Dead, and he's like at the end of the review, he's like, "We are in fact the zombies," and I'm like, "Oh wow, man, you just you just dropped a truth bomb. Somebody better call nine one one. Holy shit, you know." And it's just like, dude, you do this for a living. I can't believe. But uh, going back to racism, we're talking about racism. Um, That's because it's such a hot topic. Oh, hot take. Oh, yeah. Uh, honestly, the, the, and I sort of allude to this in the summary, but I think maybe in some ways the most telling moment of racism is just like how so unbelievably jejun the psychiatrist is about giving Charles's name to the police. It says a lot. It's pretty brutal. It's a pretty brutal comment on race and class attitudes in this country that he's just like, ah, oh, no problem. It's like, dude, <laughs> this has never been, this was never an acceptable thing to do ever. <laughs> Guilty before proven innocent, you know, right. Being black in America. No, that's very true. Unfortunately, um, God, we, I know we're white, but God, we know so much about, I th- black struggles. I think we should start a podcast about black struggles because, and we'll have some white guests on just obviously like some of those columnists, like, you know, George F. Will will have, or, or Douth at, we'll have him on uh, people who really understand, you know, that systemic racism isn't actually real. So, yeah. And then we'll go after CRT. Oh yeah, of course. That dastardly CRT that no one actually teaches anywhere. And as a concept dating back to the seventies, yeah, the whole point is they don't teach it, and they and they yeah. should. Right, like, I don't right. understand. How do you get rid of something that we're actually asking for to come into existence? But anyway, I don't know. It's really, really weird. Anyway, anyway. but I agree. I, the, yeah. I find that incredibly irritating too. So, uh, so one last thing I will say. I doubt it. And you can go to hell. No, uh, actually, no, you're probably, uh, you're right. I've actually probably got a few more things, but obviously, of course, as we were saying earlier, the image of an enormous, frighteningly enormous cock killing somebody is absurd and comical, but I mean, not just that, of course, but it's obvious Fanaka is saying, and he said it several times in interviews I read, 
but that sound effects and the and the score crescendoing it's just blood curdling man and 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 i also should say i personally think in fanaka's defense and the defense of the filmmakers i think all like the special effects teams from the avatar films and all the king's horses and all the powers of hell and you know fucking rick baker himself and maybe rob botten they could not make that sequence look plausible they may make it look more realistic but i don't think the effect would be different you know what i mean so i i think it's the the concept itself is so loaded and satirical that it doesn't really matter if it looks real or not i would agree with that there's something about what i would assume is you know due to the budget about its uh i would say slow mobility and um sure. very limited movements <laughs> yes that honestly make it way more creepier as it just like very slowly and they have to also cut between different scenes because i'm guessing it's either multiples or uh it's just i guess maybe hard to operate or <laughs> hard <even> manually <laughs> Just somebody holding Hard it. Hard to operate. <laughs> yeah, <was> good. <laughs> Get it. Um, but I imagine that all these things were literally just because that's how it had to be. And yet on screen, it just becomes this weirdly surreal moment that is both incredibly tangible because it's, a, it's mm -hmm. you know, not CGI. It's There's oh, yeah. something in that room. <laughs> boy, is and, there something also, in that room. Oh, uh, boy. That, oh, hey yeah. but also very very uh outlandish and and the two of them work in tandem to just Definitely. create a just one of the most audacious moments i've ever seen in any exploitation movie oh yeah i had no idea as i said and the surprise was very genuine and i mean and i was very riveted because at this point i'm like what is happening you know is he yeah. like is it like scanners is he exploding the guy's head with his mind you know or whatever but then that first initial shot mm -hmm. when you get any actual confirmation is the what i would say is more classical yes shot as far as we're behind the performer uh as it drops down into the frame something that has been done before in comedies for you know mm -hmm. uh for some kind of comedic effect if they're just trying to show a dick or something whatever right but then as it enters the frame and then shall we say exceeds your expectations of what you would expect to be between somebody's legs uh <laughs> at least with regards to literal human ability uh <laughs> you know yes uh lengthwise uh yeah. it just keeps going and going and um then when we cut to it on the ground it's just okay it's it's literally all out on the table now there's yep you know he really let it all hang out i was gonna say the snake <laughs> is out of the bag and ah. from that moment on you, you know you you can't put it back in so no. uh yeah <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful. But, you know, as you said about budget, I mean, I know for a fact the thing was filmed on weekends over seven months. So continuity must have been a hell of a struggle. And, and the whole reason is Fanaka said he was I could get equipment for those two days. I mean, he basically delayed graduating from UCLA uh, in order to continue to have access to this equipment. Uh, so, I mean, this was something very much done on a shoestring. And, it, and because it's also his first feature, you know, 
there's a few things. The, the, the scenes show a few times. I mean, some of the staging and blocking of the actors is a little flat, a little awkward. Oh, his next three movies, uh, which is uh, Emma May, right. and then the two penitentiary films, uh, which were all shot on celluloid. I think Penitentiary 3 was shot on video, so I'm just including the four mm. uh, that he made uh, shot on film. Like The next three movies are an incredible leap forward where it's clear that he was truly beholden to budget, not, you know, mm. just being a first time filmmaker. Cause Emma May still, I would say is rough around the edges, but way more controlled sure. uh, with regard to the, you know, the camera and whatnot. And then penitentiary and penitentiary to feel like they could have been uh, not blockbusters, but mainstream films, except for the fact that you're watching a movie about black people, which is right. uh, never going to be mainstream. Well, uh, I guess I won't say that. I, I hope that it is one day and, and not in a uh, one for you, one for me type of way. But uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, most of the issues with the film, I don't think almost any of them are aesthetic issues. Um, for me, it's like, oh, the pimp at the start probably should have been cut. That dude just can't act. He's awful. And there's ambient sound issues. Like, there literally, I think, is the sound of a camera in several scenes. Um, I don't even know if that's possible. Maybe it was the projector during the transfer. I don't know if that's possible. So, I mean, yeah, but the, they're technical. They're not artistic errors, I would say. And of course, I mean, and the things he does really well are so unusual and fresh. Uh, I like how he leaves little pauses in some of the conversations. Like when he's, when Charles is talking to Tito, you know, there's like all these nice little breathers, which is like you have with people who are, who are, know each other really well. You know, I, I liked that. And I liked, uh, some of the almost vernacular from Carmen. Like she's like, that's the same cop that put us through all those changes three years ago. Yeah. I love that phrase. Or she's got another one where she says, uh, I'm going to cut off that TV and put on some love music. And I mean, well, leaving aside the pregnancy of the phrase cut off <clears throat> in this flick, but it's, yeah. I just, I, I love that kind of flavor, you know, I, and I really like that. It, it, there's even like some pauses that are really good in the scene where he's talking to the notorious ND and he's just sitting there. You can see Charles is really measuring every word. He's like, are you seriously, are we seriously, do, you're going to pretend we're a-okay? Seriously? You know, he, you can see him thinking that and then measuring out what he's going to say. I just freaking love it. I even like the song during the first scenes with the pimp. I don't like the pimp. He's, he's terrible, but, <laughs> um, but the daddy's in the kitchen working on an overdose. Yeah. It's like a, yeah. It, it feels like seventies era temptations, like the more political stuff they did with like maybe a tribute to like Dylan's subterranean homesick blues or, or tombstone blues or one of those, you know, where it's like, yeah, uh, daddy's in the alley looking for food or whatever. I mean, it was cool that they actually had, songs they commissioned because most of the time with exploitation movies we talked about this in evils of the night it was like you know they had these awful songs that were commissioned and it's like what some middle-aged dude thinks the kids are into now you know but yeah. this actually sounded like it could have been on the radio like it was a decent song i'd agree for sure well i think maybe we should go into final ratings Jeez. okay great i was not expecting uh affirmation there oh you were expecting uh, <laughs> me to be like i have more i'm afraid i have some yeah here, which is i mean not that no it's i was gonna say it's probably true no, but it's, you can also it's very much like fold either. it into uh okay cool mm -hmm. uh well let's uh i'll kick it off cool. i will say that i love this movie um i think it's uh, i've used this word a lot during this episode but it's also just the only thing i can think of when i think about this movie which is audacious i think mm. you know a first-time filmmaker uh, working within a uh, often maligned genre, 
but also coming up with something that both uh, is not beholden to maybe the genre's inherent flaws, but also not completely dismissive of the importance of having a genre. Right. You know, um, and I found the tightrope that he walks in that sense to be just super, super great, um, for lack of a better word. Uh, but <laughs> I think the, the central through line here of the journey that Charles goes on is such a humanist mm. look at some very real world injustices. And it does it without being didactic. It does it without getting preachy. Uh, and I actually am okay with those things too. But mm-hmm, me too. it's it's also commendable when somebody carves out a slice that doesn't have to necessarily adhere to that in order to get its point across. Um, and it does it while being kind of ferociously singular in its voice. Uh, I think Fanaka was a tremendous talent and will continue to be, uh, you know, after death, as far as when we rediscover these movies and whatnot. Mm. And I, I just think this movie is just, just so good. Um, he grew as a filmmaker, for sure, after this movie. But I don't know that he's ever made anything quite as spellbindingly original <laughs> as this one. Let's put it that way. Well, you said it's it's almost like the, uh, the thing that happens sometimes when it's your debut, like, you know, Wells, you know, or I don't know, I'm trying to think of other first time directors, where it's like, they're so audacious because they don't know any better. <laughs> yeah. And and so they end up doing something really breathtakingly original. Yeah. Um, but all four of his movies are fantastic. Um, all four of them have been put out by Vinegar Syndrome as I watched Ooh. this via the disc, but also it's packaged very nicely with uh, MMA, which is yes. a great film as well. But the penitentiary movies are also fantastic, and I recommend anyone seek out those Vinegar Syndrome discs as well. Um, particularly Penitentiary 2, which I feel like is underrated because the first one is very good and a slightly more grounded tone. But Penitentiary 2 takes the story of one and and really underlines that kind of American satirical element that is almost at the heart of any kind of underdog story like Rocky or something, but beholden in this case to the black community and the, the American dream that they're sold to the point where even there's a cameo from Rudy Ray Moore, you know, at, at, a, oh, wow. at a certain point in the movie playing a pretty non Rudy Ray Moore character. Like he's just playing a, an old guy, quote unquote, on an apartment balcony yelling at the main character to be quiet, which I find <laughs> funny because of course a decade earlier, you know, he, he was anything but. He was right. that guy on the sidewalk and yeah. whatnot. He was Petey Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law, among other things. That's right. He was the human tornado. Mm-hmm. He was Dolomite. He was, mm-hmm. uh, he, what wasn't he? He was the disco godfather. So He was. Yeah. So Avenging. Yeah. I think Welcome Home, Brother Charles is fantastic. I give it four and a half out of five stars uh, for this wonderful gem of a movie. What about you, Dan? Well, um, I think I'm I'm giving it four right now. But uh, again, you know, it's I, I've only well, I mean, I, I guess I saw it twice, basically. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And I agree. Audacious is the word for it. And uh, gosh, I don't know quite what to say. Uh, I think it's a good reaction to this movie, to be fair. <laughs> like, what do you what do you say to that? You know, after you just saw something like this? Well, it, it's, a, it's a gobsmacking moment for sure. So and the and the rest of the film is quite fresh, too. And I think, as you said, there's a humanistic quality to it, which was actually part and parcel with the LA Rebellion in general, in that Fanaka doesn't, he allows all the characters to be multifaceted and um, multi-textured. Like, uh, for instance, I, I haven't seen it, but I was reading, I read a fair amount about the penitentiary films, and they talked about the warden in the first one, how 
he's not your typical white the man. You know what I mean? He's actually a relatively well-shaded person and not necessarily even a bad guy per se, you know? So I, I think this is one of the things Fanaka brings. And again, I think it's also related to that moment in time at UCLA with the LA Rebellion. So I say four stars, I think for now. Right on. Well, that's clearly high praise for both of us on Indeed. Welcome Home, Brother Charles by Jamal Fanaka from 1975. Well, now it's time for the A-list. No, I'm sorry, go on. Well, here at Project Exploitation, we're doing the A-list where we pair this B-movie we just talked about with an A-movie of our choice. We kind of try to pair them together to create an interesting double feature, hoping to complement a kind of lesser-known movie with a more wider-known one and bring out similarities in each other. Dan, why don't you go first for this one? Sure. Well, obviously, uh, Welcome Home, Brother Charles is a very singular film. It's hard to compare it to really anything. I mean, even other films from the period, even other Fanaka movies and such. But for a time, I honestly considered a film that I don't think is that great. Again, it sort of goes back to what we were saying uh, in an earlier episode about you thought about recommending Joker. I thought about recommending a movie called Hard to Kill from 1990. It's Steven Seagal. Uh, I think it was the second uh, of his vehicles. In a lot of ways, probably his best, to be honest with you. Well, I don't know. Maybe not. Anyway, but it's Steven Seagal. Every movie he's in, his characters always have like these incredible names. I mean, he's the names of his protagonists are like even more amazing than like Nick Cage when he's like, you know, uh, what is it? Good Speed, you know, yeah. Or uh, Cameron Poe. So Steven Seagal plays Detective Mason Storm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, damn, right? But the reason I thought of it was um, it's, it's a bit of a sort of a revenger, but the villains are all corrupt cops. And in the climax, it seems like they're just coming endlessly out of the freaking woodwork. It's like, how many fucking corrupt cops are in this? You know, it's just like all these shootouts and stuff. Anyway, and it also kind of it's, it's also kind of funny because um, there's this one honest cop in the movie who gets killed near the end helping Steven Seagal. And he's clearly a really good friend with him. And then at the end, after Steven Seagal kills the last bad guy, he looks over at his daughter and he's like, I think we need a vacation. And I'm like, uh, what about your friend who just died saving your fucking life? Any comment on that? And, and he dies in a really heroic way. Like he gets shot a bunch of times and then he shoots somebody else before they can shoot Seagal. And then, die. I mean, it's like his last moments on earth are like super heroic. And it's like, wow, no, no comment at all. Nothing. And, and I remember watching it as a kid and being bothered by the emotional stupidity of that moment. Also, Kelly LeBrock's in it. And, you know, I'm, I'm a fan. And uh, also, there's a whole thing about uh, there, a friend of mine, Victor, when we were in high school, he saw the television version of this. And this is a stupid, huge aside here. I'm sorry. No, go on. <laughs> Make yourself comfortable. Put your feet up, proverbially speaking. No, <laughs> my friend Victor saw the television version, which was edited for content, of course, because it was on network TV or WGN or whatever. 
And there's a big love scene between Kelly LeBrock and Steven Seagal, where she shows up in this very low cut dress. And it's really weird. It's like, it's the transition is very odd. She just was like, she comes in with a rose and he's like, I think he's training or something in a gym or whatever. She's like, I thought you might like a rose. And then immediately they just start macking. And because it was edited for content, they couldn't show, I don't know if it was super nudity or just enough that they had to edit it. So all of a sudden, the television version, it just cuts to feet, like her feet and his feet. So my friend Victor would always be like, I thought you might like a rose. Feet, baby, feet. And it was just like, that was our idea for whenever something was really awkwardly edited for, and it was just like, wow, they didn't even try with that one, did they? But in the end, I'm not going to suggest Hard to Kill because I thought of a film oh, I actually good. liked. Well, I'm glad that you wouldn't waste our time. Well, yeah, you saw what I did there. I had my cake, I, you know, and et cetera, like, uh, like before. You anyway. think you're having your cake and eating it too, when in reality, you are having your cake and then puking it all over the audience and myself. Well, some people pay good money for that sort of thing. That's true. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give you that 20 bucks later. <laughs> oh, that's good. So I am going to actually recommend a movie I do like, though. It's uh, Dead Man's Shoes by Shane Meadows. It's from 2004. Hmm. It's a a British revenger, not huge budget. Um, Shane Meadows is a very clever, competent filmmaker, and he's very prolific. Um, And it's kind of like his update in a sense of Git Carter, you know, the the Michael Caine flick, or if you like the Sylvester Stallone remake later. It's uh, Petty Considine, who is absolutely awesome in everything he's in. He comes back to town. In, In this case, he's not getting out of prison. Uh, he was in the army. Uh, I think he was in the UK. And he comes home to the Midlands of Great Britain uh, instead of, you know, Watts, which is where Brother Charles comes back. Anyway, the principle is essentially the same, though. And they both have a whiff of the supernatural to Dead Man's Shoes. Uh, I don't know if it's not as pronounced because I can't remember if it's ever said or if it's just a supernatural feeling or an ill at ease or something. It has an eerie vibe that's very similar to Brother Charles's sense of dread. And also, Considine has much of the same intensity and that slowly revealing wrath that Marla Monti does as playing Brother Charles. So it's it's a great revenger, but it's it's worth it if for no other reason than just to see two really impressive performances by Considine and uh, Toby Kebble, who's quite good in it, too. So that's my choice. My choice is Dead Man's Shoes. Right on. Uh, well, my choice uh I'm going to be a little basic boy and uh, <laughs> and go with something a little uh, based, as the kids say, on the Twitter sphere. And uh, I'm going to go with uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Now, ah. these movies in general are obviously very different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's just uh, clear and cut, dry. But I think if you watch them together... It creates an interesting uh, portal into the trajectory of black cinema as a whole, while also being able to see, uh, I would say, uh, the predecessor, in my opinion, to Spike Lee's. uh, I mean, he wasn't like super before, but obviously he was before. It was about one generation, like one decade, I would say, before uh, Spike Lee. Mm -hmm. I find this movie in particular to be a similar magic trick 
uh, cinematically speaking, as to what Spike Lee did in, in, in the larger conversation, which is just inject oneself so confidently, but also abrasively into the cultural media conversation, particularly with regards to black representation, and just do it with such fervor and, and disregard for any actual accountability of white uh, uh, reaction, you know, uh, just right. fucking do it. And I think for that reason in alone was why I would uh, choose to do the right thing. I think in a lot of ways, Fanaka probably was not afforded some of the opportunities that Spike Lee was afforded, who also wasn't afforded some of the opportunities <laughs> that other contemporaries were, you know, True. but one was able to do things at an earlier time within the confines that they were able to do it so that another one could come a little bit later and, and do it even on a slightly grander scale without the pretense of quote unquote black exploitation, you know what I mean? And whatnot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have no doubt that if Spike Lee wanted to, if he was uh, an older person and he was starting out in the 60s or 70s and wanted to make the films that Spike Lee wanted to make, that he would have had to have probably made black exploitation, quote unquote, mm-hmm. films. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I find them to be kindred spirits as filmmakers, uh, particularly with regards to their very singular voices and mastery of the form. Uh, certainly one got to really blossom as a filmmaker and, and really could go off and have a lucrative career, but yeah. um, that just says a lot about, I think, Jamal Fanaka's short tenure as a filmmaker that I would even put them in the same breath because that's a that's quite an impression that one made in such a short kind of period of time. So, hmm. yeah, for me, yeah, Welcome Home, Brother Charles with uh, Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. Well, that's a great choice. And, and I mean, in, in the case of both films, it's very difficult to find comparisons to either one. They're both very singular. Yeah. And uh, and I know for a fact Spike Lee has much affection for the black exploitation stuff. I remember reading an interview where he talks about uh, how much he liked Get Christy Love. Oh yeah. And there's a couple of homages uh, to black exploitation that are funny but affectionate in um, Girl Six. So I, I mean, yeah. so I know. Well, he's... even um, Black Klansmen, the, the oh, two yeah. love interests, had that conversation about. I think it was at Shaft versus uh, Superfly. No, Superfly. Well, well maybe I, I not. forget. But it was it was it was a conversation in the in the movies universe about you know two prominent black exploitation characters and and which one that they each backed. So yeah, no, it's clear that he does obviously have a love for them, which is good because they, as we saw today, I think with Welcome Home, Brother Charles, uh, there is a lot to mind from them. And yeah, I think that's going to conclude our discussion today on Welcome Home, Brother Charles, uh, directed by Jim Afanaka uh, from 1975. Um who knows what the future will bring? Uh, well, we do, but we're not saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, might might be something with a, a trashier aesthetic, one might say. Oh, I, I see what you did there. Mm-hmm. Or did I? I don't know. I don't know. We haven't really talked about it. Uh, dear listener at home, we haven't actually finalized yet. So Nick may know what I'm talking about, or he may be like, okay. What I actually do know what you're talking about. Okay, good. Uh, I was just trying to not give away what may or may not be in the title yes. that I just gave away. No. So. You said may or may not. That's our little, we don't know. That's, that's our little clue. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, so look out for that in the future. <laughs> I gotta and, see that. Uh, <laughs> karate. Um, Explosions. Man. We're never gonna, not going to bring that up now on like every episode. It's just, it's so good. Honestly. We should honestly get that clip 
of Ferguson mm-hmm. saying that. Like, I gotta see that. And we have to mm-hmm. find a way to work it into, like, maybe into the A-list theme or something. I don't know. But at this point, I feel like it's it's embedded into the DNA of Project Exploitation. It's just him saying, I gotta see that. That's a great idea. I love that idea. I mean, you know, you guys are listening to how the sausage gets made. Yep, exactly. You didn't realize how fascinating the the making of can be, and it is. But it's like you know, isn't it Jimmy Kimmel who always has the uh, Mac and Me? Uh, Or no, no, it was it was uh, Coco, wasn't it? Yeah, because Paul Rudd would always show up and show that clip from Mac and Me. Oh man, which is one of the funniest clips ever by anyone. I mean, it's It's I just. I laugh and I laugh every movie. single time. Mm, beautiful. Mm. Uh, Speaking of exploitation. Okay, well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm, just saying. Oh, boy. So, yeah, for myself, Nick Cheney, and my brother, not bloodwise, mm-hmm. Dan Jeremy Brooks. Mm-hmm. I just want to, for legal reasons, stay <laughs> uh, Just You have no. <laughs> No claim on any of my estate or wealth, <laughs> which I'm just amassing behind me Gosh. right now. Uh, I thought I had a silver bullet just now, and then you went and did a disclaimer. Damn it. Yep, that's mm. right. Sneaky. So, yeah, uh, from myself, Nick Cheney, and Dan Jeremy Brooks, this is Project Exploitation, and uh, we'll see you on the next reel. It just needs an end, Max. I... I don't have an end.